Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with my colleague, Bruce Kelly. This is our 99th episode, for those of you... No way. Yeah, yeah. Apparently 99 times we've done this. Um, So... uh, so uh, there you have it. How uh, did we do that? I I don't know. One at a time is how we did it. <laughs> One grinding. That seems like a lot. I've never done 99 in anything. Man. No. You know? uh, well, you've probably had 99 beers, according to that song. I've shot a few 99s yeah. on the golf course. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, keeping it under 100, Bruce. That's what we like to see on the golf course. Oh, All man. right. Um, we have a uh, we have a special guest this week uh, because we're going to talk about the SEC's proposed new rules uh, related to ESG investing, uh, environmental, social, and governance investing. And for those of you who aren't familiar, the SEC stands for the Securities and Exchange Commission. Yeah, this so, guy's uh, a smart guy, Jeff. I think. Yeah, Lance. His name is Lance Dial. Lance is a partner at Morgan Lewis. He's a lawyer and a member of the firm's ESG and sustainability team with more than a decade of experience as senior in-house counsel with global investment managers. Lance has a deep understanding of mutual fund law and operation and is fluent in the myriad regulations applicable to investment managers. He is also well-versed in the creation of investment products and ESG and sustainability matters. And he told us just before we uh, started recording that he is a nerd. He is an adult nerd, he said. so. Well, I called him a nerd, <laughs> to be fair. He just didn't, Lance didn't come out and say, hey, I'm a nerd, I think I said. I often do, though, so. Yeah. It's a little poetic <laughs> license there. I, I worded it how I wanted to. So, hey, Lance, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. My, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I just, I'm a little disappointed that I'm on the 99th and not the 100 episode, episode spectacular. Oh, wow. So, uh, but 99 is good. 99 is good. Yeah. 99 is the one they remember. Um, so, uh, Lance, let's, let's kind of get into this here. Lay, lay the foundation a little bit about this, uh, the new SEC uh, ESG disclosure and fund name proposal. Um, yeah, what has the SEC actually done, and when did they do it? And... Without taking us into the legal jargon that I know you're familiar with, you know, talk to us so that you know Bruce and I can understand it. All right? Sure, happy happy to do it. So, um, I guess where I'd start is that Gary Gensler, as chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, has expressed a lot of concerns about asset managers and greenwashing. And what that means is people who you hire to manage your money. Uh, are telling you things about the way they manage the money uh, in a way that um, suggests that they're paying a lot of attention to environmental, social, and governance, or ESG concerns, when they may not be doing that. So Mm -hmm. the SEC is concerned about that, and Gary Gensler actually did a Twitter video where he talks about how ESG disclosures should be like what you see on the side of a carton of milk. You really mm-hmm. want to know what's inside of that. How does it how does it work? What's going on? Because the there's a huge level of demand uh, on the investment side uh, for people who manage money in a way that's consistent with the ESG values. So people aren't just saying, what's the highest return I can get? There are many people who want to look at their investments as a way they can impact the world. They'll invest mm-hmm. through impact funds that try and support businesses that um, improve housing conditions for um, underserved communities, or they'll invest in funds that all, in turn invest in clean energy solutions. So people are trying to express some of these global concerns through their investment portfolios. 
And there's a huge demand for this. Uh, and so asset managers are responding. And so what the SEC is responding to is the concern that asset managers are advertising these products that meet these needs when they actually don't. So market, marketing, in other words, around ESG, is that, that's what they're concerned about is what it right. sounds like you're saying. Yeah, telling that story. They want to make sure that if you want a portfolio that for whatever reason is a clean energy portfolio, maybe you think that that's where the, the world is going. Maybe you're worried about what's called transition risk, which is the risk that uh, companies face with the transition to a zero carbon economy. Uh, maybe you're worried about those things and you invest in a fund that calls itself a sustainability fund. Do you really know that it's going to be investing in the way that you think it's going to be invested? That's mm -hmm. what the SEC is trying to do. And they're not the first regulator to take a crack at this, by the way. Globally, we started seeing this with um, the European regulation called SFDR, which was a disclosure regulation aimed at how funds were marketed uh, in Europe. And so the SEC is behind the Europeans in this regard, but they're attacking the same concern. Are, do people know what they're going to be getting when they make investments? Well, one thing I first want to ask you, Lance, is you referenced the ingredients on the side of a carton of milk. And wouldn't that just be milk? On the on the on the milk, it depends on where you buy your milk. Um, oh, okay. So if you get the good stuff, it's generally milk. The one I have in my fridge, like says powder, sugar, high fructose corn syrup, oh, white number okay. eight. Um, that's, that's good to know. <laughs> I, I don't I don't drink milk, but uh, I always assumed it was just milk. Yeah, and that's the greenwashing. You mentioned greenwashing. That's what they call it when you when you say that something is is uh, more ESG than it really is, or in some cases maybe not ESG at all. So that's what the SEC is trying to, uh, I guess, crack down on. Which, and, and, and I have so many questions about this because I've followed the ESG space for a long time. And, you know, the, the definitions change and evolve. And even fund companies, and I'm not trying to defend any fund company here, but sometimes it's a moving target for fund companies to, uh, to actually be, I guess, in compliance where there are no strict definitions of what ESG is. Absolutely. And, and one of the things when I'm talking to clients about their implementation of ESG strategies or their disclosure of ESG uh, in marketing materials mm -hmm. is to make sure they understand themselves what they're talking about. Make sure they come to uh, agreement on common terms because you'll find even people working in the same business uh, and literally the same firm may say different may say the same words and mean different things and I'll, right. I'll give you an example of one that that underlies some of the um, some of the action under the proposed rule um, many portfolio managers the people who make decisions about where a fund will invest will say sure I consider ESG factors when I'm making an investment and they may mm -hmm. they may fully believe that and they may they may do but then they may turn around and say but if it's really good value, I'm going to ignore those factors and make a make a purchase anyway. And that's the sort of thing that the SEC is trying to bring to light. If it's an important <laughs> right. enough factor where it's going to be dispositive, we want to hear more about it. Uh, and if it's not important at all, we want you to say that as well. Because to me, it seems like what the SEC is doing in the in the way that only the SEC could or would do something is is it sounds almost like they're putting up a little bit of a red flag saying, you know, be careful. Because, you know, we know that we can't enforce rules that aren't even in existence yet as far as defining what, what ESG is. So just be wary of it. But there was a guy at uh, 
uh, Deutsche Bank, senior executive of asset management, who had to step down this past week, or he, I don't know if he had to step down, but he stepped down, he resigned this past week because of allegations over fraudulent ESG funds. You're familiar with that, aren't you, Lance? Well, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a couple of things going on, and, and I don't want to get into any particular companies, um, but there are a couple of things going on there. Um, a few years ago, there was some discussions in the industry about uh, Deutsche Bank and their um, and their ESG processes, and I'm not sure how much the recent news about the CEO stepping down is directly related to that or other things. All right. Well, anyway, it kind of shows the the seriousness of this, even though we're. I mean, I don't know. I like I said, I cannot get over how how you can try and put rules around something that just keep moving. But I think Jeff, the proposals are pretty simple, though. I mean, at least as Emil Halle reported who's our ESG guy, two rule changes, one for investment product names and another for ESG disclosures made by advisors and investment companies. If you just take the investment product name, that seems pretty straightforward. It seems straightforward until you, like, for example, how can funds disclose greenhouse gas emissions for its holdings where there's no agreement on how to measure greenhouse gas emissions that's just one headache that's that's one headache that that headache though is that, so there's a two-prong approach on that the first prong is the recent um climate change risk disclosures that the sec mm-hmm. uh, proposed for public companies that re- would require issuers in the united states who are public issuers to disclose their scope one and two emissions right uh, which are you know various ways to different to measure your carbon emissions with those numbers, a fund would be able to calculate these 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 greenhouse gas calculations that are required under the under the ESG rule. But that's a that's a great example of what, what seems simple. Disclosure greenhouse gas. They probably spend more pages and paragraphs and words and sentences in the proposal talking about the calculation methodologies for mm-hmm. how you will report that greenhouse gas emissions than they did in any other single item in the proposal. It's a very complicated set of calculations that they're requiring for funds. And I worry that when you've got something so prescriptive, so challenging, it may actually serve as a deterrent for firms who want to offer these funds. And and there's also a, a, a challenge in the way the rule itself is, has been proposed. The trigger point for you having to make those GHG emissions is when you become an ESG-focused fund that considers environmental factors. Let's say you don't include those GHG factors in reliance on that you're not going to consider those factors. Does mm-hmm. that now mean your portfolio manager is effectively prohibited from considering environmental factors when making investments because you haven't made this GHG disclosure? I think that's something that will be um, raised in the comment period. The SEC will have to think about when they take this forward towards well, a final rule. Now, that, that, Lance, doesn't make sense to me because just because you're not declaring yourself as factoring in greenhouse gas emissions doesn't mean you can't, right? Right. It's true. And it, it shouldn't work that way. But the, the, the way the rule is written is looking at it from one perspective. It says, yeah. look, if you're going to tell people that you're, if you're going to have a fund that says it considers environmental factors and considers environmental factors, then we need you to show your work. It's kind of like when I was in fourth grade. When I was in fourth grade, I would just do my math homework and my math teacher would get really upset for me. She'd say, show your work. Mm-hmm. And in many ways... This rule is about showing your work. How can you show us that you're doing the things that you say you're doing? And one of the ways that you can show you're doing the things you say you're doing is to disclose your overall greenhouse gas exposure. Mm -hmm. So they say, if you want to tell people you're an environmental fund, you need to disclose your greenhouse gas exposure. That, That shows 
that you're doing your work. But when you flip that backwards and think about it from, well, I'm not one of these funds, does that mean I can't do the things that those funds do as well? And it's, it, I think it's a, a, a glitch in the rule that will need, will need to be ironed out through the comment period. But this is why we have a comment period for these sorts of rules where the public can submit letters, thoughts uh, to the SEC staff and the commission, and they'll consider those as they move this to a final rule. Well, meanwhile, it's worth noting, I think, that the climate risk disclosure rule is still being drafted. Well, that, that, one, is, uh, that one is out. The final rule is the comment period is still open. Uh, and I think that closes on June 20th is the um, is the, for the issuer disclosures. What do you think the chances are of a, of a lawsuit being filed against the ESG rules? My, I'm benchmarking on the climate disclosure one, the one applicable to public issuers. Uh-huh. That's probably close to 130 uh, percent. That's, I think, almost a certainty. I would be surprised if the complaint is not already drafted up somewhere on the ESG uh, rules for funds and advisors. Uh, I think people are still digesting what's in this rule. I mean, it, after all, it was only proposed last week, so it's so mm-hmm. it's still fresh. And so, you know, I think the likelihood of it being caught up in a lawsuit will depend on one, the fate of the original climate disclosure rule, because as Jeff, you mentioned, these things tie together. You can't do the GHG emissions disclosures if you don't have those issuer disclosures. Mm-hmm. So that will be one thing. The other thing is how how do they respond to the comments? Do they address the concerns that the the fund industry raises about some of the impracticalities of this of this rule? If they do, you know, some of the guts of it are good. They they are truth in disclosure. They are requiring people to say what they do and do what they say, which is a good thing for the industry because it creates um, trust. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that this one. I don't know. I can't benchmark what this one will be sued on the names rule itself, which is a separate proposal. Um, that one has its own complications. And again, I think we'll see how that digests through the comment process uh, as to whether or not people get upset about that one. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the names rule, because that, as Bruce said, it sounds kind of simple. You know what I mean? Don't say you're you're a, a green fund if you're not. But it, obviously, there's more to it than that, right? Yeah. So the, the names rule proposal, it actually builds on a rule that's been around for about 20 years. 2001 was when the, the, the original names rule came out. And what the names rule was about is they said, look, we want people who are buying a fund that says it's a bond fund to know they're getting bonds. Like Mm -hmm. we don't want bond funds to invest in equities. So it was originally a fairly simple rule that said, if you're going to call yourself a bond fund, then you need to adopt a policy that says that you're going to invest at least 80% of your assets in bonds. Straightforward. And then that, that made sure that people are getting what they're, what they, what they're being advertised through the fund's name. Mm -hmm. There were some, concerns with that as that developed and some of the primary concerns were that some fund names kind of resisted criteria like that so you might have an income fund what does that Mm -hmm. mean that's not bonds versus stocks that's income or a global fund um, or a value fund or a growth fund these aren't these were not covered by the names rule and this new proposal seeks to expand the names rule to cover those Uh, and though so now it's now it's moving into the world instead of just are you a bond? Are you an are you an equity? You're going to say, are you a is this investment consistent with your growth strategy? And uh-huh. again, it's a lot of showing your work. You'll have to you'll have to show and prove out that you you've adopted an 80% policy. Everything 80% of the assets are growth assets. And then you're gonna have to show and prove out that that you are in fact following that. And that's the same thing with ESG. They say in there, look, if you're gonna if you're gonna name your fund ESG, 
you have to have some serious ESG bona fides. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they, they, they do, borrowing from the ESG rule, is to say if you're just an ESG incorporation fund, a fund that just says we consider ESG, then you can't call yourself an ESG fund or a sustainability fund. You mm-hmm. need to do something more if you're going to bear the moniker sustainability ESG. Otherwise, we think it's misleading because if you remember back earlier on, I mentioned the portfolio manager who may just say, yeah, I consider it, but I, I, I dismiss it. They don't want those funds getting the ESG name. And that's the that's the element in the ESG rule that um, I mean, in the names rule, rather, that mm-hmm. uh, addresses ESG. What do you think uh, happens if re- Republicans take control of Congress in 2023 with these rules? Do you see some kind of move away from a focus on ESG rules? Well, you know, Congress can switch and Gensler still has a seat. Mm-hmm. So Gensler drives the agenda. And, you know, the SEC itself is, you know, a, a independent agency. So they are not necessarily beholden to Congress. Now, that doesn't mean that Congress can't make life challenging for Chairman Gensler. They can mm-hmm. summon him to the Hill to testify on X, Y, and Z. They can make him justify everything. They can threaten uh, withholding of funding unless he withdraws certain proposals or does things. So mm-hmm. they can try and do things. It's going to depend on how much of their um, arsenal they want to deploy on these. Um, but as a matter of course, just a switch in the political party of, of Congress won't necessarily turn the switch. Gary Gensler has shown that he has a very aggressive agenda mm-hmm. and he's going to pursue that agenda. He's done more rulemakings, major rulemakings in his tenure than I can ever remember any, any chair doing. Uh, and he's trying to do it very rapidly and make lots of wholesale. And this mirrors what he did when he was chair of the CFTC. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know how much Congress can or would slow him down. Well, what, what do you see next coming out of uh, a Gensler SEC? And, and second part to that question is, what do you think is his biggest success or, or impact so far? Man, he's, he's, um, he's, he's proposed so many rules on touching so many areas. I mean, we're talking here about funds and names and, uh-huh. and, and ESG. Um, but the climate rule, the climate rule will be the thing that uh, is, is, that's the largest, in my opinion, the largest revision to... Uh, the United States securities disclosure rules since they were adopted in the 30s. But that is a huge change. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that that will be a feather in his cap. Uh, he has a lot of political wins on on his back uh, from the Democratic Party. I know Elizabeth Warren sent him a note at some point during his um, chairmanship saying, why haven't you done this yet? Um, it's been a directive from the Biden administration, a whole of government approach to address climate change. So I think that's one that he's really focused on. But he's also he's also a bright he's a wonk himself. He knows this stuff. So he's got rules on uh, what it means to be a broker dealer. He's got rules on what it means to be an alternative trading venue that are out there. Uh, the mm-hmm. rules that he are, is is adopting are have, have far reaching implications. And one of the concerns industry has raised throughout his tenure is, look, you're doing so much, we can't even assess how it's going to impact our industry because so much <laughs> of this will interrelate. And so it's, it's, it, it's, we'll see what gets ultimately adopted, but there's definitely a lot in the air. Okay. Bruce, anything else for, for Lance? I'm interested, Lance, how long have you been practicing in mutual fund, you know, with me and working with mutual funds and the like? Yeah, so pretty much my entire legal career started off as a, as a baby associate early in the 2000s, 2004, I want to say, 
and uh, have been doing registered fund work ever since. I spent 15 years in-house at two, uh, two firms, so I have a perspective of, of what's going on inside these firms, and, and I'm a relatively new partner at Morgan Lewis, having joined only in October. Well, congratulations for that. Thank you. So you go back around 2000, 2002. So this is kind of what I'm getting at. You remember Bob Glauber over at the old NASD, right? Yes. And the mutual fund scandals from the early 2000s. Yes. And the big push that Glauber, who was at FINRA, not the SEC, or NASD slash FINRA, uh, would have evolved into FINRA, not the SEC, so a lot of less clout. But I remember Bob Glauber, who recently passed away, making a big deal about simplified mutual fund disclosure. Um, do you remember all that, any of that, or, or no? Yes. No, it was... Um, it was a big yeah, the, deal, the, right? It's a, it's a big deal. All the way back to the, the late 90s. In the late 90s, they had a, a plain English initiative, um, and they've in, and in the prior but the regulators always lose. Uh, well, they, it's a the pendulum. Industry never. <laughs> At the end of the day, simplifies its disclosure, as far as I can tell. And I've, as Jeff knows, Jeff is really our our all around investment guy. I've honed in on more alternative products and private placements and the like that kind of get in trouble. Not that all alternatives and private placements should have a bad name, but I, I kind of go where the where the fire is in my reporting a lot of the time. But it just seems to me I'm I'm listening to you guys and I'm thinking, gosh, I remember Bob Glauber all the way back in like Palm Springs in 2004 in this NASD meeting saying they were going to have a one-page mutual fund disclosure, and it never happens. It kind of happened. What happened back in, in 2000, I want to say 8, 9, 10, somewhere right around there. I can't remember that exact date. But the SEC adopted new rules allowing for mutual funds to produce what was called a summary prospectus. Right. And the idea was to take this giant document and reduce it to about four pages. Right, and the and the and the mutual fund prospectus is how many pages? The single fund prospectus is going to be in the dozens and dozens of pages. Right. Um, if you look at a fund family, you're in you're in the reams of paper because you've right. got multiple documents and so on. And and the reason for that is because of the, all these you know the reg, every regulator who gets in and wants to do something wants to do it through disclosure, and so there's new disclosure requirements. I mean these, these ESG disclosure requirements that we have are going to add several pages to all of these prospectuses. Right. There was in in the um, prior administration under Chair Clayton. There was an initiative spearheaded by the um, head of the Division of Investment Management, Dahlia Blass, at the time, who uh, wanted to simplify all this disclosure. They, she wanted right. to simplify it for the boards. She wanted to simplify it for funds. And they did investor workshops on what works and what doesn't work. And there's actually a proposal out there um, that we, we may see come to fruition. I, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's changing the way shareholder reports are generated and to allow for more layered disclosure and more accessible disclosure. So it is something the SEC has has wrestled with, and it's it's kind of there's both sides. There's one side that they they want more disclosure because that's their tool to regulate. The more disclosure they have, the more they can see into your conduct, the more they can examine you, the more well, that that's they the can. That's the lawyer's argument. Attention. If you that's don't right. mind me saying. No, it it is the lawyer's argument, and 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 you know disclosure is a lawyer's tool, and so there's there's that. There's the other I've side. I've had PR is, people when I've called up you know big firms and said. Why is this on page 100? Why is this item of this on page 125, you know, or something of the prospectus for this crummy investment? They say, well, it's disclosed. 
And my response is, but that doesn't mean that the advisor who sold it or the consumer who bought it understood it, you know? Just because something I, disclosed does not mean that the end user can understand or, or comprehend it. But it does give a lawyer, an attorney, a way in to make his or her argument. Right. And and in my view, the best disclosure would allow for people to understand early on all the material features of what they're going to invest. If, if you see something on page 125, it's because someone somewhere thought that that was either responsive to an item that became later on in the form and they weren't allowed to move forward, or uh, it was not a material salient feature and, and, and got lost in the noise. But you're right. We can always do better on disclosure and um you know the, the initiative that uh, dahlia blast had i think was a worthwhile initiative to really help out investors get accessible disclosure uh and hopefully that uh, that that continues to move forward so when are you going over to the sec so you can straighten all these guys out over there <laughs> you know i just got here so i'm still getting my feet Come wet on, on the whole law firm thing um <laughs> but who knows <laughs> okay well i'm all for simplified disclosure jeff right but it just doesn't seem that we get it enough or get it with the hot new products like esg yeah and and uh lance knows well that simplifying legal documents is not something a, a lawyer is going to be able to do I, <laughs> <laughs> um hey uh lance i got one more thing for you back to esg for a second here sure. what what impact i mean we know that esg has been one of the hottest things out there at least from yes. a sales perspective what impact do these do these rules these proposed rules are what are they likely to have on on the esg space is it going to clean it up is it going to make people feel more confident because it, it maybe it feels like the the regulators are on top of them or or what do you think it, it's hard to say now because these rules are in their proposal stage but i think one obvious impact is that we're going to have more disclosure. Sorry, Bruce. Uh, we're going to have more pages of disclosure uh, on ESG. And that means that there's going to be a lot more for investors to digest and read uh, and understand. And so that's going to be one thing that's out there. Another thing that's going to be out there is the, the in this one of the categories in the ESG um, rule is the ESG integration fund. And that's when they say, and I get back to that, that example, if you're just saying I consider ESG, you shouldn't advertise that. That's You're not an ESG fund. You're not a sustainable fund. So we might see some changes in fund names because mm -hmm. of both the names rule and because of the ESG rule as people assess whether or not they fit into the new, the new categories or whether they want to and can make the disclosures that are necessary. So I think we'll see some funds change and change their strategies and move forward. If you flash forward five years, though, Jeff, to your, to your question, you know, if we have a good standardized workable ESG framework, where funds know what they need to disclose, know how they need to disclose it. I think the market is better off. I think people have more confidence, just like you have in your in your milk with your ingredients of milk. Mm -hmm. People will be able to pull up their ESG fund and see ingredients ESG and know that mm -hmm. that means something and that everybody knows what that means. And so I think rules like this will, over long term, make for better, more accurate disclosure. But there will be a transition period where we're trying to get them right and we're trying to adjust to whatever gets gets um, ultimately passed. Which, which may take some time. Uh, I like the way you slipped in your uh, milk analogy one more time. Um, <laughs> freaking lawyers. Lance Dial, 
uh, partner at Morgan Lewis. Thank you very much for being here. Really good stuff. Very informative, and I know I learned a lot, and I can't wait to get you back on here for an update in a, a few months to tell us where it's going next. Happy to do so. This was fun. Thank you, Lance. Great. Thank you. All right, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, it's time for another podcast. And we want to thank our special guests, Lance Dial, partner at Morgan Lewis and a member of the firm's ESG and sustainability team. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester. Of course, you can find uh, the Investment News Podcast at investmentnews.com, as well as all those other great places where you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. Uh, if you want to reach out and complain or cajole or, 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 or whatever, uh, you can get Jeff uh, on Twitter via at Benji Ryder. I'm on Twitter, too. My handle is at BD News Guy. Please stay tuned, and we'll be talking to you next week. Hey.